0: Welcome to the City Collective Church Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that in today's message, you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. Hey, how is everybody doing? I'm so pumped to be here. Oh my goodness, I, um, in my old life, I was an itinerant speaker. This is my beautiful wife, by the way. Thank you, darling, Hanji. Um, her name is Khadija. She's so friendly. If you need a friend, Khadija will be your friend. Uh, she's amazing, and she's beautiful. She's the whole package. Um, in my old life, I was an itinerant speaker. So I traveled around, uh, whether it was in Europe, or in Canada, or in the States, and it was so much fun talking to live audiences. Uh, And then COVID happened, and everything was virtual. So I have not gotten over the fact that I'm looking at human beings right in front of me, and I am so excited about that. And even some waves, hallelujah. Um, That's awesome. We are going to dive into, and I do this reverently, Uh, the topic of Jesus, I just, I can't think of a more lofty and more sublime topic than this. And we, as I was thinking about this, there are so many ways that one can approach this. And I've picked a particular way of approaching this that is not the only way. But this, I think, will be tremendously helpful for you as it has been for me. Hi, precious. It's nice to see you again. Uh, so let's, uh, let's dive right in. Deconstruction. And can I just kind of get a hand poll? Who's been enjoying this series on deconstructionism? Has this been helpful? This is awesome. Um, I'm so happy that we get to do these sorts of things. I've been utterly enjoying it. A season devoted to thinking deeply and rationally about the Christian worldview. Though Jesus himself said, Loving God with all your heart and soul is essential. It is not sufficient. He bids his followers to love God and worship God with their heart, soul, and mind. And it is interesting to me that so often the church has forgotten such a critical aspect of the teachings of Christ that Christianity proper teaches some sort of blind faith or irrational, illogical, intellectual leap in the dark. Let me be clear, that's wrong. Is that too subtle? No, okay. To love God with your mind was included in Jesus's great command. Followers of Jesus are summoned to love and to worship God holistically with your entire being. And therefore, Pastor Jason and I hope and pray that this series has been helpful wherever you are in your process of thinking about uh, your faith, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. And on that note, as I wrote in your journals, and we have more journals if you need one, um, you can grab one in the foyer to follow along throughout the entire year. But as I wrote in there, it is my conviction that there is only one reason why one should believe in Christianity. It is not for some sort of psychological benefit, though that's welcome. Don't get it twisted. It is not for societal advancement and, if anything, Christians are becoming even more despised in society. It is not to appease familial relationships, though the pressures around that are very real. And it is not for monetary gain, like the prosperity gospel, which is immoral and heretical. The only reason why Christianity should be believed is because it is found to be true. And to that end, Jason and I have sought to unearth many of the questions and doubts that so many of us already possess, whether it's overtly or discreetly, we're thinking about them. uh, In week one, just a quick recap, week one, Pastor Jason so eloquently discussed and grieved the atrocities that are writ large in the church's history whilst concurrently articulating how egregiously out of tune they were with the melody of Christ and how beautiful that melody was, wasn't it? On the next slide, the beautiful melody of Jesus. To the hurt, Jesus was healing. To the traumatized, Jesus was safe. To the marginalized, Jesus is justice. To the rejected, Jesus is accepting. To the guilty, Jesus is grace. And to the curious explorer, Jesus claims to be truth. We examined in week two, the vast ocean of evidence that supports the veracity, the trustworthiness of the Bible. And you guys so graciously allowed me to nerd out for nearly an hour. Uh, God bless you all uh, for allowing me to do that. Uh, But it was awesome. And that stuff has been so helpful for me as I've thought through the Christian faith myself as a latecomer to Jesus. Week three, we covered, does the church matter? Uh, Where Pastor Jason, again, so helpfully reminded us all that when the church is what Christ summons it to be, that it matters greatly to humanity's flourishing. Recall the the amount of empirical data that he brought to the forefront or recall some of the heroes of the faith. I, I, I put up some of my favorites on the next slide. William Wilberforce, who was instrumental in the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade or Harriet Tubman, who felt led by God to spearhead spearhead efforts in the emancipation of scores of African Americans from the horrors of chattel slavery, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Christian who refused to cower in the presence of Nazis and Hitler, or Sir Isaac Newton, Galileo, Copernicus, all of these, si- these scientists who birthed the, the idea of the modern conceptualization of modern science, who from their faith was like a like motor that drove their scientific exploration and investigation. Or Mother Teresa, who because of her faith saw with enviable clarity that people were made in the image of God. And that Christ abides in them, even in the poorest of the poor. In today's text, you can throw up the next slide of I don't know, raise your hand if you remember this painting. Anybody want to take a shot of who painted it? Michelangelo Maresi de Caravaggio. Come on. And it's called, it's entitled The Incredulity of Thomas, which is the unbelief of Thomas. And last time I pointed out that Thomas's reaction, um, that it wasn't one of naivety or credulity, as as is often caricatured in our culture. These Christians, they're to be pitied. They will believe anything. But his reaction wasn't. Of that sort. It was rather one of rational skepticism. Because Thomas knew, as any 21st century biologist will tell you, that people simply do not rise from the dead, especially after the horrors of crucifixion. And Jesus, in this scene, so gently, I just love this painting so much, so gently, Approaches Thomas, who is swamped with grief and doubt, and speaks to him, and engages with him, which is important for all of us to know, especially as we're considering this deconstruction series. That God is not disappointed by doubt, that God is not angry with questions. He's not intimidated, nor is he threatened. Sidebar, personally speaking, thus far in my journey with Jesus, I came to Christianity at the age of 21, an opiates addict, and I was into all sorts of bad things. A story for another time. But thus far in my journey with Jesus, my doubts and my questions And my failures have been unsuccessful in changing God's love towards me. And it is the same for you. Turning back to our text from John 20 today, and it was the same text that we covered last time. Where Jesus appears in the room with the disciples and Thomas is incredulous. He's not willing to believe unless he puts his fingers in Jesus' wounds. And Jesus discomforts himself in order to settle the doubts of Thomas. And notice what transpires in that, that section of scripture. This climactic point in the gospels. The entirety of Jesus's ministry is focused nearly on one thing, his identity. Who is Jesus? The entire ministry of Jesus is punctuated by that question. Who is Jesus? Whether it's individuals or crowds overtly in the streets or in a room in the back corner, who is Jesus? And sometimes they would ask him even directly, tell us, who are you? Tell us, are you the Christ, the Messiah, or not? And moreover, there are seminal moments where Jesus addresses his close network of disciples and engages with them with one fundamental question, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And that's a question that faces all of us even here today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he one prophet or guru amongst many? Is he a good moral teacher? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Is he merely legendary? Or is he Lord? And the response to this fundamental question of who Jesus is is summarized in our text this morning out of John 20. In verse 28, it reads this. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. I put up the Greek there, o mu, hatheos, theos mu, the Lord of me, the God of me. And notice the sequence of events. Does, does Thomas just naively and blindly believe? And the answer seems to be, well, no. And Thomas calling, to G, uh, Thomas calling Jesus my Lord and my God is utterly astonishing for a first century Jew who were radically monotheistic. It was beyond their capacity. They they would not even entertain something like this unless something had dramatically happened. Something paradigm-shattering. And that paradigm-shattering event is nothing less than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And notice further that Thomas's conclusion comes after and only after a thorough analysis of the evidence. The evidence specifically of Jesus' resurrection. We can say, therefore, Thomas' conclusion of Jesus' di- divine identity is derivative of the evidence that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. God incarnate. The second member of the Trinity, God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Almost kind of gives you a foretaste of Christmas, doesn't it? Uh, Emmanuel, come on, somebody. Um, as the evidence component to and the evidence component of Christianity is critical here, as Sherlock Holmes uh, helpfully reminds us. It is a capital mistake to theorize before you have all the evidence. It biases the judgment. And I cannot tell you, this is not Sherlock Holmes anymore, but I cannot tell you um, exactly how or why so many churches have have deviated from this. I'm not sure the reason why. It's simply mind-boggling to me, and I'm going to resist the temptation of ranting and raving about that but we're called to worship God with all of our mind as well. And uh, well, Thomas sets out the methodology for this morning. We're gonna look at some evidence and it's gonna be awesome. Um, it's gonna be historical Jesus evidence and evidence for the resurrection. And I'm just pulling out my phone because I'm going to start my timer, which I should have done a few minutes ago, um, but that'll just keep me on track because. You know, it's 11:16, and I'm already getting hungry. So uh, I imagine some of you all are as well. So, okay, I wish to present you two categories. I already enumerated them before. Evidence for the historical Jesus. Can we trust what we know about him? And number two, evidence for Jesus's resurrection. Can we trust the resurrection? So you can take a sip of coffee right now, or uh, your water, or your tea, your pint of beer. I don't know what you're having this morning, whatever gets you up in the morning, Um, but you can take a sip right now, and uh, let's get it. Let's just jump right in. Uh, Slide number one. (laughs) Oh my days. Anyways, evidence for the historical Jesus. Can we trust um, what we know about Jesus? So this is generally, in the academic world, this is called the quest for the historical Jesus. The quest or the study for historical Jesus of Nazareth and his first century Middle Eastern world is enormous and fascinating academic discipline. First of all, that should just refute the uh, objection that um, it is predominantly a Caucasian religion. Jesus was not Caucasian. Middle Eastern from Israel. Awesome, Middle East. Let's go. Um, the whole and it's and it's comprised of a whole constellation of academic fields that contribute to this quest. This is anthropology, archaeology, history, Jewish studies, theology, textual criticism, and so on. And with so many fields studying this particular topic, with so many different perspectives out there, it is easy to envision that it can get a bit muddled, and muddled. It has become, um, did Jesus exist, is our first question. Did Jesus exist? In a 2015 survey in the UK, over 40% of people in the UK, in England specifically, um, never uh, believed that Jesus never really existed. Over 40% in 2015. I tried to find an equivalent uh, survey in Canada. I could not find one. But I imagine it's roughly the same. And this belief that Jesus never really existed has led to some to suggest that he was either a legend that was concocted or some sort of ideological centerpiece um, created by a band of individuals with a specific uh, religious or socio-political agenda in mind. Or perhaps Jesus of Nazareth was an exceptionally gifted uh, rabbi in his first century world. And um, you know, the uh, apostles and disciples, they just could not bear with the fact that he was murdered. So maybe you know we conceptualize some sort of uh, exalted idea of who Jesus actually is. So claims such as these have dominated traditional headlines as well as popular social media platforms like TikTok and so on. Um, three examples of well-known voices speaking into what has been written um, is as follows. Uh, These are three uh, very uh, prominent atheistic voices. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, says the highly questioned existence of Jesus. Richard Dawkins, uh, who I ran into a grocery store uh, one day in Oxford. I I, got it. I'll tell you another time. Uh, It was it was good. I, I, I try to I try to invite him out for tea. And I was like, "Hey, man! Like, I'm a 30-year student." So Richard Dawkins, if you don't know who he is, he's a famous Oxford biologist. Khadija and I were living in Oxford. I was studying at the university. I said, "Hey, man, would you ever?" Uh, like, well, I seen him at a far, in a distance, and I'm like, "Yo, this is my shot. I gotta tell him about Jesus." And uh, <laughs> you know, i was like, "Give me confidence, Lord." And so I went and rocked up, and I was like, yo, man, just very discreet. Hey, man, uh, I'm a third-year student here. Um, Would you ever consider having a cup of tea with a third-year student? Really interested in the stuff you write about? Have your book at home and all this kind of stuff? And you know what he said to me? No. (laughs) He let me get a picture with him, though. Anyways, he's a good chap. Okay, and he says... It is even possible to mount a serious, though not widely supported, historical case that Jesus never lived. Uh, Number three is an atheist philosopher. His name is Michael Onfray, and he writes this. Jesus' existence has not been historically established. No contemporary documentation of that event, of the event. No archaeological proof. Do you hear that? No archaeological proof. Nothing certain exists today. We must leave it to lovers of impossible debates to decide on the question of Jesus's existence. Now, Dr. John Dixon, who has been quoted nearly every time uh, during this deconstruction series, writes this, skeptics may rule the headlines, but not the academy. Contrary to the headlines and Social media and so on. The scholarly consensus is that Jesus of Nazareth, as a matter of fact, existed. And I put up for you here, I'm not going to read this stuff to you, but this is this high-level, peer-reviewed sources for the scholarly consensus that you can possibly find. It is a consensus that Jesus existed amongst Scholars, and why is this scholar? Uh, why is there a scholarly consensus? You might be axing, and I'm so gl- glad that you did. Um, as I mentioned during my my last talk on why trust the Bible, archaeologists on the ground in Israel today are discovering artifacts on a nearly daily basis. Um, you're going to see this in uh, in the next slide. So when I was going through my notes on this topic, I wanted to find what are like the dopest archeological finds that relate to the life of Jesus. And I put them, I went to my trusted source, which is a gentleman named Craig Keener, who is a boss biblical scholar. Um, He's awesome. Stephen is nodding, he knows Wagwan. And so he, um, oh, go back one, right there. And so these are some of the most important major archaeological findings when relating to the person of Jesus and his life, and they're dope. And we're going to go through only one. I will resist the temptation to go through all of them, but as I was going through my list, which is um, uh, from a particular book that I have, I um, I missed at the very bottom the town of Nazareth. You see that in 2009. So this is crazy. So a lot of scholars used to think that. Uh, There were holes in the New Testament because Jesus, fundamental to who Jesus is and is identified as, is he's Jesus from Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene. And so scholars are like, well, the problem is that we just don't know where Nazareth is. And it's not mentioned very much. So if that's a problem. If we can't find it, and his whole identity is predicated on this is Yeshua from Nazareth. And so they kept looking and looking and looking, and people became more and more discouraged and less and less confident because the the critical thing with the New Testament is, this is a fairly significant detail. And if they got this detail wrong, then the natural extrapolation is, you're gonna get other major details wrong. Does that make sense? But then in 2009, they found it. And they got lots of evidence from there. As you can see, there's. This is a really important thing, so I actually had to go back and double check my notes, and I had to add that in because my my resource wasn't even updated enough um, wasn't even updated enough with the archaeological field right now because it's moving at such a quick pace. Awesome. Um, let me just show, share with you one thing. This one. Raise your hand if you've ever seen this before. Two guys. Okay. Anybody else? Oh, yeah. You got it too. Okay. Awesome. So this is a crucified heel. So um, Jesus was crucified. This is potentially what his heel would have looked like. And uh, they they actually know quite a bit about this heel. It uh, belonged to someone named Yohanan. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I'm probably not. Uh, I'm not Hebrew at all. Um So it belonged to that gentleman, and he was put to death via crucifixion in the first century, okay? So right around Jesus' time. And the bone was accidentally found in an ossuary. Now, this is really important. An ossuary in 1968, when some building contractors just happened to stumble upon it. They happened to, like, they're digging, And they find this thing, and it's like, oh, you know, this is Israel. We find stuff here all the time. This looks fairly important. And so we should call the authorities. The authorities come in, and they confirm, yeah, this is a crucified man's heel from the first century um, AD. And so this is awesome. So um, one of the objections that that was quite popular is Jesus's account of his crucifixion doesn't sound correct from what we know from history. And the reason is this. Who who got crucified in the first century? The worst of the worst criminals. Like terrors of society. Why did Jesus get executed? Because they they condemned him for reasons of treason. That's right. He says on the top of the cross, king of the Jews. The Roman Empire is not going to have another king in its land. And so they crushed him. And so anybody who did that level of criminal activity was executed and it was meant to be a deterrent to other criminals. So that means that they're utterly humiliated and shamed and all of these sorts of things. It was the quintessential way to degrade a person in their culture. It's public, you're humiliated, you're tortured to death, and you are put in front of everybody to see. And the the capstone for it is, is that they would take this body and throw it in a shallow grave. Now, this is so important because because burial rites and, and burying the dead in the ancient world was a big deal. It was a very important aspect of whether it was religion or whatever, this is an important deal. And we know that these criminals were thrown into shallow graves and their corpses were picked clean by dogs. And they have whole sites that are dedicated to that. You could read about that in Tom, uh, Tom Holland's book, Dominion. Um, and here's, here's the point. Jesus is crucified, yet in the gospel accounts, he's buried. In like a really nice way. And that doesn't happen. So it must be an inaccuracy. Until they found this. Because it was found in an ossuary. This is hard evidence that Jesus' burial, which was a formal, religious, and respectable burial, wasn't completely unprecedented. And they had to throw away this objection against the Gospels. And you would think, if it was a made up account, why would you include that? It would be far easier and far more believable if you just said he got thrown in a shallow grave. You know what the interesting thing is, too? Most founders of religions, we know exactly where they're buried. Do scholars know where Jesus is buried? The answer is no. Got goosebumps. Do you know why? The reason is, is that these burial spots, too, major religious figures became the destination point of religious pilgrimages. Jesus's grave did not rise to the level of importance that these other religious figures enjoyed. It wasn't important enough because it was empty. And that's why we know so much about Jesus, but we do not know where he was buried. Not with 100% certainty. And that alone distinguishes him from every other worldview that I'm aware of. Whew. Awesome. <laughs> uh, I, I hope my own commentary is okay uh, for you guys. So in short, what do findings like you know, this stuff do? Cumul- cumulatively, uh, what they do is to see, they support the proposition that New Testament writers were intimate with the context and details of Jesus' life. It means that the Bible that you hold in your hand or on your device, uh, s- which speaks about Jesus, the Son of God, has been carefully and faithfully preserved by eyewitnesses who wrote with an extraordinary high degree of integrity. Segway. Um, It it isn't archeology archaeology that helps us to gather uh, a picture of who Jesus is only and prove that he existed. It's the cacophony of voices writing around his day as well. And we're gonna blast through this because I'm trying to get somewhere. Historical, uh, Historical textual evidence for Jesus's existence. I'm not, I'm so tempted to run through each and every one of these names, but I'm not going to subject you to that sort of thing on God's holy day. Um, These are at least 38 sources that corroborate, these are independent attestations, that's what they'll call it in the literature, um, individual voices that all corroborate the details of Jesus's life, at least to some degree, at the very least, that he existed. And, um, There are a couple like really important ones. Um, Well, they're all really important in their own way, but um, I chose to select two of really hostile ones. They hated Christians. So um, if you're in a courtroom and you have a hostile witness, uh, their testimony is more valuable than somebody that's like mates with you or whatever, friends with you. And so uh, number one, um, Cornelius Tacitus, who's a Roman historian, lived really close to Jesus's time. Considered by many as uh, the greatest Roman historian of his period. In 64 AD, he wrote about um, when Jerusalem, sorry, um, when the city of Rome um, had a fire go through it and they, they wanted to blame Emperor Nero. Everybody believed it was Emperor Nero that committed this atrocity, but Emperor Nero flipped the script, blamed it on the Christians, this radical, weird new tribe that's like coming Um, that is manifesting, and so Tacitus writes this piece, and let me read it for you. Therefore, to squelch the rumor, Nero created scapegoats and subjected to most refined tortures those whom the common people called Christians. Hated for their abominable crimes, their name comes from Christ, who, during the reign of Tiberius, had being executed by the procurator, sorry, procurator, there we go, it's been a long morning, Pontius Pilate. Suppressed for the moment, the deadly superstition broke out again, not only in Judea, the land which originated this evil, in some of the manuscripts it says disease, so Christians are evil or a disease, pick whatever one you like, Um, but also in the city of Rome, where all sorts of horrendous and shameful practices from every part of the world converge and frequently cultivated. So I underlined here some really important bits of what we can know about Jesus and his time. And if you go to the next slide, it, I just uh, enumerated them for you, that Jesus existed, that there's this religious sect called Christians, that Christ was uh, executed, uh, Pilate executed him, and so on and so forth. And so we can actually know a lot. Like if we, hypothetically speaking, if we lost the Bible, the New Testament, let's say, if we'd lost that, we could piece together what Jesus lived and did. It's awesome. Like you don't even, you you need the gospels because you obviously, there's lots of teachings and what Jesus did is in far greater detail. But if hypothetically lost all of them, we would know exactly when he lived. We would know what he did and what people thought about him and what happened after his death and how he died. The next one is Flavius Josephus, who is a Jewish uh, politician, soldier, historian. He is called the single most important historian of the ancient world. And he confirms the existence of Jesus indirectly and directly. Indirectly, he says this, so Ananus assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who is called Christ, whose name, uh, whose name was James and some others. And they were delivered them to be stoned. Now, this is really interesting. So this, the reason why scholars that think that accounts like this are so important is because Jesus is not directly the focus of the writing. It's an offhanded like idea. Like it's just a, a mention of him. So there's no motivation in order to like falsify something like this. Do you, you know what I mean? Like there's no reason why he would make that sort of uh nonchalant detail, this like seemingly insignificant detail. Like why would he make that up? And so They give that a lot of weight. The second one is directly. This one is a longer one, um, so I won't read it for you, but this talks about Jesus as a wise man, as a teacher. You can go to the next slide, actually. Uh, That he was a wise man. He was a teacher. He performed surprising feats. Jesus won over many Jews and Greeks. Religious uh, um, Religious leaders and elite accused Jesus of breaking their laws. He was condemned to death, and so on and so forth. So we can actually know a lot about Jesus just from these hostile, anti-Christian sources. Does that make sense so far? Raise your hand if you're tracking with me. Okay, this has been a lot of information. Take a sip of your coffee or your beer or whatever you're drinking. And um, all this archaeological and textual evidence from outside the Bible, extra biblical stuff, just paints a very clear picture of who Jesus was. And it's always been impressive to me that even if the New Testament was lost, we'd still know so much about him. Evidence for Jesus' resurrection. This is my last point. Evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Can we trust Jesus' resurrection? Remember for for Thomas and the other apostles, this this was clutch, this was critical. This was the linchpin point, was the resurrection of Jesus. And this is inherently a problematic thing because we know that people don't rise from the grave. So this is a really big problem. And some of the most scathing critiques of the resurrection don't come from outside the church, but from inside. So 1 Corinthians uh, 15, Paul writes that if Jesus did not rise from the grave, then your faith is futile. It's in vain. The whole Bible pivots on this one event. One of my professors back in Oxford used to say, Ladies and gentlemen, a man rose from the grave, and that affects everyone. Because what does that mean? What does the resurrection mean fundamentally? And this is huge for when we're thinking about the second half of this topic's question is like, why does it matter? And what it means fundamentally. That hope is real. That death is not the end. What a fascinating proposition even if you're not intellectually convinced, in my view, I would want that to be true. The meta, the the story of Jesus is the story that renders all other stories trivial by comparison. That God entered into creation the creator into the creation. And he walked around and we've seen how he would act in situations. We've seen how he would respond to a woman that was was broken by marriages and relationships as he sat down at a dusty well with her. We've seen how God would respond to a son, a prodigal son that had had gone and, and nearly ruined his life, yet wanted to come home and wanted forgiveness. We know how God would respond when the religious elite of his day would take a woman caught in adultery, thrown at his feet and said, will you not stone this woman for what she's done? And God says, no. That's awesome that we have accounts like this, that this could plausibly be true. So we have to think about the resurrection account. Okay, real quick. Gary Habermas is one of the world's leading um, experts in this particular niche topic of the resurrection. So what he did for his doctoral dissertation, this is really interesting. uh, He poured over 3,500 scholarly articles, in, or, in three languages, in order to find what the scholarly consensus was surrounding the resurrection. I'm sorry, I got to say it. My man must not have been married. I don't know if my wife would let me pour over 3,500 articles in three different languages. I get like a few a week at school, and I'm like almost burnt out. You know what I mean? So that's so impressive to me. He's a big dog in the field. And... Uh, and, uh, and, and so he wanted to, to know what this consensus was, not just amongst uh, Christians, but of every stripe, including the most critical uh, uh, non-Christian scholars. And this is his 10 minimal, uh, sorry, his 12 minimal, minimal facts. These facts, in the academic world, no matter what's said on TikTok or Instagram or whatever, not to trivialize those sources, I'm sure they do great research, but... <laughs> I'm trying to be charitable. Um, but this is what academics will say is factually true. This is, this is a fact of history. Jesus died by crucifixion. He was buried. Jesus' death caused the disciples to despair and lose hope. Jesus' tomb was empty. The disciples had experiences, at times polymodal. What that means is that they were um, Uh, experiences with Jesus that included more than one sense at a time. So touch and smell and hear and taste and all that stuff, Uh, which um, they believed to be the risen Jesus. Uh, The disciples were transformed from doubters to bold proclaimers. So something transformed in them. The resurrection was the central message. They preached the message of Jesus. um, Jesus' resurrection in Jerusalem. The church was born and was born and grew Orthodox Jews who believed in Christ, made Sunday their primary day of worship. That was enormous. James converted when he saw the risen Jesus. James was the brother of Jesus. He was the skeptic. And Paul was converted. Paul, the outsider outsider, and the radical, um, he was radically hostile towards uh, Christianity. So these facts, in short, beg for an explanation. And you can group all of the possible, like, think about this. There's only so many possible explanations for the resurrection. Like we have all these facts. There can only be so many logical explanations for all the facts. And so what are some of the logical explanations? Well, you can deduce, you can pile them into like three major categories. Um, The disciples were either deceivers, deceived, or deluded. This isn't my, it's somebody else's, I forget right now. Were they deceivers? That seems crazy. Radically unlikely. Um, this means that they would have stolen Jesus's body. Um, however, this explanation doesn't seem probable at all because of the intense persecution. If it was um, a deceiving people, if it was them deceiving people, then somebody surely would have cracked under the incredible persecution um, that the early church endured. And it seems uh, that they sincerely believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave. As one of my former colleagues used to say, nothing proves sincerity like martyrdom. These boys really, uh, and, and women, uh, sincerely believed, um, in the resurrection of Jesus. Were they deceived? Well, who deceived them? The Romans? The Romans killed Jesus. Was it the Jews? The Jews handed Jesus over to be killed. So the fact that some people think that they were just deceived into this sorts of thing, just is begging the question. It's like, well, who's doing it? And you have to come up with a good explanation for that, um, and number three is diluted. Some will argue, "Well, the disciples hallucinated." And this theory, just in short, is just uh, it's just so not taken seriously anymore. It's completely discredited. People don't have group hallucinations. Uh, group hallucinations do not happen. Cognitive, cognitive scientists know this. Um, not only is that, uh, it is repeated appearances over 40 days, There's multi, they're polymodal, so that means that Jesus is having conversations with individuals and groups. He's breaking bread, he's cooking breakfast, he's um, visiting, he's walking, he's talking with people, he's touching people, he's doing all sorts of things that hallucinations do not do. Um, and then the fourth explanation, uh, I think logically speaking, of these facts is that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. N.T. Wright from Oxford University says this, I have examined all the alternative explanations, the ancient and the modern, for the rise of the early church. And I have to say, the best historical explanation is that Jesus of Nazareth really was raised to life. My time has come to an end with you all. And you all have been so patient with me. And I so appreciate that. I wanna just show you a painting before I I leave. Does anybody know this painting? Anybody? My wife does. (laughs) I subject her to all of my nerdiness before you all. Um, This is the Eisenheim Altarpiece. It's located in France. It's painted by a gentleman named Matthias Grunwald in 1512. And it was the altarpiece in a monastery that specialized in the hospitalization and care for those afflicted by plague. It was painted in the monastery amongst those who were sick and was the primary motivation for the artist in his incredible work. This painting is to show those who are suffering who Christ is to them. That Christ wasn't some aloof deity but one who is well-acquainted with sorrow and grief. He is the crucified God, the lone, scarred God of history, who does not distance himself from our sufferings, but comes down and enters into them. At the very bottom, you will see his feet. It's one of the most gnarled parts of the painting. And it would have been the very first things your eye would see. As you come up, somebody plagued and suffering, you would see these nail-pierced feet. And the artist covers Jesus in plague. You'll see in his hands, you see his hands are like this. But his head is drooped. You know what that means. Artists, commentaries will call this a physical scream. That Christ is one that gives voice to the voiceless. Who is Jesus? And with this I close. He is God amongst us. He is the love of God manifest. He is the one that invites you to examine the evidence like he invites Thomas to examine the evidence. And my own testimony is that after it, I have found him to be my Lord and my God the one who knows the pain that i've gone through and knows what it took so that i can have a relationship with god amen a master pray i can do that if you bow your heads with me god speaking about your son Jesus is far above my pay grade. I pray that your spirit would be working in all of our hearts and souls and minds. I pray that you would help everyone that's that is on their journey that they would know that this is a safe place to ask questions and voice doubt and concern. I pray that you would help them as they do, as Thomas did, a thorough analysis of the evidence. I pray that you would speak to every single one here. Thank you for your love poured out on the cross. We thank you for your triumph over the grave you are the scarred god the resurrected god and the god of our hope i pray this prayer and i pray that you would help everyone here today in jesus name amen Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it challenged, encouraged, and inspired you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.